Hi, it's Jim Wilson. Welcome back to NGB Ideas. This podcast is about the journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community, and it's brought to you by LabOccupier.com. On today's show, we speak with Brigitte Nollet, President and CEO of Roche Canada Pharma. We talk about her professional experience as a tri-sector leader, her personal experience as a patient, the potential of Canada's health sciences and life sciences sectors, and the importance of being honest and clear with everyone on your team, including yourself. Brigitte Nollet, welcome to NGB Ideas. It's great to have you. Thank you for the invitation. Before we talk about your professional journey, I'd appreciate taking a few moments to start with where you grew up. You were born in Welland, Ontario in the 1970s, and I've been there, but many of our listeners may not be familiar with this part of Canada. Where is Welland, and what was it like growing up there? Welland, Ontario is a town just outside of Niagara Falls, Ontario, near St. Catharines, Port Colborne. It's a a town of about 50,000 at this point. It was a great city to grow up in. I grew up in a rural area of Welland, so we lived on the outskirts of the city with just a few neighbors on the road across the street from a dairy farm and had a wonderful upbringing when I reflect back on it. I grew up in a francophone household and I went to school actually in French. The elementary school system was fully French and the high school system was fully French. I am lucky enough to have grown up with both languages. Your mother was from Northern Ontario. I'm from Northern Ontario as well. Where was she born? She was born in a really small town called Werner, which is north of Sudbury. And your father was from Quebec. Where was he born and how did your parents meet? He was born in an even smaller town called saint Severin, Quebec, which I suppose is between Montreal and Quebec City. So a very small town. And he moved to the Niagara Peninsula. So he grew up mainly in Port Colborne. He was quite young, I think four or five years old when he moved to Ontario. My dad is one of 11 children. He was one of the youngest. So the family moved to the Niagara Peninsula around the time when employment was high in the Niagara Peninsula in terms of canning factory, flour factory, steel manufacturing. And so they moved for work by and large. Your mother taught elementary school and your father worked as a welder. Did he work in the shipyards or the automotive industry? He was actually a welder on uh, really large barrels and so on that were used in different types of equipment. My whole life, I remember my dad being a welder and very proud of it. And you're right, my mother was a teacher in the French elementary school system. So you've got two younger sisters. So with five in your household, it was a busy place. My sisters are twins, four girls and my dad and one washroom. That's all I can tell you, Jim. So your family was very close-knit, and I understand you were particularly close to your mother, an aunt, and your grandmother. Could you tell us a bit about them? I think for me growing up, you're always looking for role models. You're always looking for people who inspire you. And I look back on my childhood, and I see very strong women, aunts, grandmother, mother who all worked outside of the home. And so I grew up with that as a norm to work outside of the home. And, you know, my grandmother was working outside of the home in the 40s and 50s and 60s. I just think it was a really interesting journey that they were all on. And so as my career has progressed, as my professional journey has moved, it certainly I reflect back on what they taught me. And it all seems very normal to me, but I can appreciate it may be different than what people have gone through. 
These women were very formative. I can see where you've taken your lead. I was interested to learn that your mother was the primary breadwinner in your family when you were growing up. And looking back, do you think that arrangement between your parents was something that had a conscious or unconscious impact on your life? I think it was unconscious in many ways. Both of my parents worked. My mother went back to university in my high school days because she understood that if she had a university degree, her salary would increase as a teacher. And all of these things I was observing were really important. My dad was there supporting the household as much as my mother was. For me, it was just normal and natural to have both parents work. And I remember having conversations with my mother and she would often say that when she and my dad first got married, they did talk about whether she would leave the workforce and raise their family. And she just felt that it was important to her to stay working. And she was just so passionate about teaching. She taught in primary school. She was just so passionate about it. She stayed in the workforce and they stayed at unit that way. And when I reflect on my family and the adventures we have, and I know we'll talk about it in a few minutes, but it's just so natural to me to be a working mom and to have a husband who is a stay-at-home dad and is supportive of my children and what we're all trying to accomplish and how we make decisions together as a unit. It's normal to me now. And when I reflect back, I suppose it was all unconscious the way it evolved. That is such a cool background. I've mentioned on this podcast that I was a bit bookish and kind of shied away from sports until I got into high school. Was your childhood experience similar or were you playing every sport you could find when you were a kid? I played a lot of sports. I was also bookish. I loved to read. I loved to write. And I really loved playing sports. In high school, I was a co-president of the Athletics Association for a year I played soccer, I played baseball, I was on track and field, I played volleyball, but I also worked for the local newspaper of the city and wrote articles and so on. I certainly appreciated the breadth of extracurricular activities that were offered to me. I'd like to touch on the newspaper article part. When you were in high school, you wrote articles for the Welland Tribune? I wrote a few articles as my high school career progressed, and it was just something that the newspaper was looking for different voices, and I just felt, I still do, I just love to read, I love to write, and it was an avenue that I was exploring at one point in my high school career was whether I wanted to be a journalist. I'm thinking the kids that I went to school with, including me, would not have had the nerve to do that. That's pretty cool. Well, thank you. A love of writing. You played a bunch of sports when you were in high school. After graduating, you attended the University of Waterloo. You graduated in 1998 with an honors Bachelor of Arts degree in English rhetoric. I love this. In English rhetoric and professional writing and a degree in social development studies from the School of Social Work with a minor in women's studies, which is a mouthful. I have to thank every parent listening to this podcast who has a daughter or son in the midst of a liberal arts degree. It just heaved a huge sigh of relief hearing that. I'd like to dive into your degrees for a moment. It, part of your degree was in English rhetoric, which is something I am completely unfamiliar with. So I'd appreciate you explaining to our listeners, but mostly to me, what is English rhetoric? And more broadly, what a degree in English professional writing and social development studies with a minor in women's studies entails? What's so great about universities, you get to explore your interests, right? And you get to understand where your passion is. And what I really appreciated about the University of Waterloo was that I was able to expand my learning. 
I've always been quite a serious student. And I think that for me, the co-op program with the University of Waterloo was a big draw. And I mentioned writing was something I really enjoyed doing. And so I really wanted to explore writing. The English Rhetoric and Professional Writing Program was a mixture of different types of writing, right? So the theory of it is, how do you write arguments for different perspectives? How do you think about professional writing? I learned about business writing, how to write manuals, how to write speeches, how to think about fictional writing, how to think about non-fictional writing. It was a really interesting set of courses that I took. And then on top of that, I started to take sociology courses as you do in a Bachelor of Arts, and I just fell in love with sociology, with psychology, and the School of Social Work at the University of Waterloo was just such an interesting path. So then the writing part was interesting, and I got to explore social development studies. So in the end, I wanted to do both. And the minor women's studies, of course, probably comes from the childhood I've had, from the experiences that I've had. I was just so curious as to how women were leaders in their own right. If I could have, I suppose I would have done a major in women's studies. I just couldn't fit it all in. But the minor in women's studies was wonderful and was a really good base. What was it about sociology in particular that attracted you? I just really appreciated that sentiment of how people evolve and how demographics evolve. I remember our statistics course and looking at demographics and how demographics have an influence on policies and government policies. And I remember taking certain courses on to work specifically and how to counsel people through different episodes in their lives and different experiences. And it was just so people-oriented. I think that's what really drew me to it. Your family was not wealthy when you were growing up. Did you put yourself through university? Did you work while you were there? It was a big part of that co-op program with the University of Waterloo where you studied for four months and then you had a work term and then you studied again and then you had a work term. So my parents were generous enough to have saved up and were able to help me through my first few years of university. And then I was able to then save up enough money to start paying for some of my tuition and was uh, lucky enough to receive some scholarships as well from the university to be able to pursue my studies. That's how I got through university. And then there was a moment where I thought, gosh, I'd love to go to law school. And then I needed to work to save up to go to law school. And in the end, I got involved in healthcare some of my first jobs, and I never looked back after that. Speaking of looking back, the following question is something you don't typically share publicly. If you don't mind, I'd appreciate talking a bit about your personal medical history. When you were around 25 years old, you were diagnosed with arthritis. And I'm guessing you had symptoms leading up to that diagnosis while you were at the University of Waterloo. What was that time of your life like? I remember waking up one morning and having a really sore finger on my left hand. And I just thought maybe I got bit by a spider overnight. And it was just really sore and it was sore for a few days. And then progressively throughout the next few weeks, then the next finger got sore and swollen. And then the next, and then the next. And what I recall was heading to my GP because essentially, Jim, both hands were completely swollen. I could not make this at all with my hands really painful. Tylenol was only so helpful with what I was going through. So you're right, at a time when I should have been focusing on perhaps some social activities and, and other academic activities, you know, I was trying to figure out what was happening to me and what was happening to my health. 
And it took about six months to see a rheumatologist. And I just remember the pain that I was going through at the time. And was lucky enough to work with a rheumatologist who helped me understand that I actually had psoriatic arthritis. Everything that I've gone through, this was a big part of that realization. You know, at the, at the time that I was being supported, I was taking 42 pills every week. And now I'm where I take medication once a month. Moving forward to keep my joints fluid and moving. I'm one of those people who can really passionately, authentically, quite personally talk about why the life sciences industry is so important and what it can do to really help people living with diseases move through their lives and still have wonderful, productive lives. Thanks to innovation in healthcare that continues to evolve. In spite of this medical obstacle, and thank you very much for sharing that. I appreciate it. Was university a good experience for you, or was it something you couldn't wait to graduate from and just get on with life? I'm quite a studious person, and even in my professional life, I crave learning, and I'm extremely curious as a person. From a social perspective, the best friends in my life I met at university, and that co-op program was really meaningful for me, and it set me on a path as a student to then be able to explore different types of professions and different sectors. It was a really great experience. Now I will say at the end of it, I was excited to finish because I had met my husband on one of my work terms. And so I was looking forward to finishing university and moving back to Ottawa to spend time with him. But overall, a wonderful experience. You graduated in 1998 and your first job was with Health Canada, where I think you put your university degree to good use. You became director of communications in the office of the Minister of Human Resources Development Canada, HRDC. And then you became press secretary to the Minister of the Environment. I understand as a side hustle, you also served on two federal election campaigns, including supporting Jacques Kretcher during the 2000 federal election. You accomplished so much in such a short period of time. Was sleep something you just intentionally were avoiding, or were you just a huge fan of coffee? (laughs) (laughs) You're right to the extent that, again, I had the most wonderful work terms and got to meet people in Health Canada that helped introduce me to other really impressive leaders that were able to then take me on in their offices as we went forward. So I went from being a government official to then a political staffer To this day, I'm a very much a morning person, Jim. I do love coffee. And I just loved that time in government to really understand the policy. Also, all the ministries that I worked in, it was more on the social policy side and just understanding how government policy is developed, how to work in a consultative way, how to bring in different perspectives from society into decisions. It's really set me up for everything I've been able to do since. Do you think your personal health experiences allowed you to better understand the roles of government in the pharmaceutical industry at large? I certainly do. I'm not sure I understood it at the time, though, 24, 25, 26, and so on. In those early years when I was just grappling with my disease and how to manage the pain, I don't think I understood the complexity of it all. But certainly when I joined the pharmaceutical industry, it was very much at that point, a few years into my disease management, and I understood at that point that I could join the industry and speak with a very authentic voice and really make sure I was supporting others who were going through similar situations. I've got a nephew, I joke he's one of my four favorite nephews, who works at Health Canada. And 
he loves his job, and I think he's very good at it. But my impression of working in the federal government is that it exposes you to hierarchies and challenges that are not typically seen in the private sector. What was your experience? The strength of working in the public service is that you're working with a real purpose, and you're working in a way where you are advancing files and advancing work that will have an impact on Canadians' lives, right? And so it's a really strong area to work. The public sector is a really impressive place. It certainly comes with hierarchy. It comes with a very clear decision-making path, and you have to be comfortable to work in that. I would say, for me, I was still quite young when I transitioned to the private sector, and it was with a recognition that I just wanted to see what other sectors looked like and understand if everything worked the same. And I had a few directors general who just encouraged me to explore different avenues. The private sector can still be quite hierarchical, Jim, so I don't want to give the impression it isn't. What I would say that I've learned over time, though, is for my own preference, I prefer not to be in a micromanaged situation. And for me, we're just the right place. If my timeline is correct, in May 2002, you joined the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association of Canada. This organization is now known as Innovative Medicines Canada, and you were initially Director of Governmental Affairs, and you held that position for about two and a half years, and then became Vice President of Policy Research and Scientific Affairs for just over one year, before then becoming VP of Federal Government Affairs for FTP Relations, which I learned in my research, stands for Federal, Territorial, and Provincial Relations. Why did you make that move? What attracted you to that organization? I was approached by the organization. So I was working in a political office, and I really wasn't thinking about a move. And I was approached by IMC for a role. It was just at that crux of finally having a good understanding of what was happening to me health-wise. It was just at the right time of my life where I just thought, yeah, I understand what this industry does. I understand why it's important. I understand why it's important to make sure that healthcare innovation continues. And if I can be part of that kind of dialogue, then I think I'm a good person to be able to lend my voice to that view and to that purpose. It was very personal, I believe, to enter the industry. It sounds like you enjoyed your time there quite a bit. I did. It was wonderful. You get to support a variety of companies that are coming to Canada and have been in Canada for a long time or that are growing in Canada. And you get to understand different perspectives. You get to appreciate the complexity of healthcare in a different way than you do in the public service. You know, it just gives you a really well-rounded perspective in terms of access to healthcare that I may not have gotten in any other way. So I really appreciated my time there. And I worked with some wonderfully passionate people. You've said that the pharmaceutical industry became a part of your life without you initially understanding that it was happening. And you've also said that your professional journey within the life sciences sector has been a very personal transition. What do you mean by that? I was both in some career. I had met my future husband. I was trying to get my life on track. And it's only now that I can look back and see all the moments where I transitioned professionally, where I can say, yeah, I did those when I look back for reasons that were professional, but mainly that they were personal. I left government and joined the trade association at a time when I got sick and understood what I could offer the industry. I joined Roche 
after that at a time when my father-in-law was ill and I saw what different medications could do for him. And they happened to be Roche medications. And so I then joined Roche Canada. And that continues even in some of the changes I've made globally and in Europe. I have the benefit now of looking back and I can see that red thread. I wasn't seeing it when I was living it and going through it, but I can see it better now. Do we often, well, very seldom rather, see the future coming at us? We only see the path in the rearview mirror with the benefit of a few years of hindsight and go, oh, yeah, there it is. In 2005, you got married to your husband, Chris. How did you meet? It was on a co-op? It was, and we're going to laugh at me. It was a beautifully cheesy moment. We were next door neighbors, and we met because we were both on each other's balconies. (laughs) (laughs) And Mom Holston is a musician. Imagine this scenario where I'm coming home late from 97 election, and I'm, no surprise to you, reading a book. Just needed some quiet time, and then the guitar starts strumming, and and then... And then I look over next to, you know, to my right, and there's a, you know, a fine-looking gentleman playing guitar. So that's literally how we met. Okay, I've got to ask, who made the first move? I did. I'm so surprised. (laughs) Good for you. He eventually decided to leave his career to support you and your family. Having a a husband stay at home to raise the kids is not a stereotypical family structure, at least not in North America. But it was a structure with which you were familiar because that was your family environment when you were growing up. But seeing it is one thing and doing it is another. Was this change a difficult transition for either your husband or you? One of the reasons that I joined Roche was because I appreciated the portfolio. I appreciated the scientific approach. Chris and I talked about it at the time. We also were interested in a global and venture as a couple and as a family. So we knew we wanted to explore global possibilities when I joined the company. Chris was always on board, even from the beginning, with being able to experience other countries. When that time came, it was a team decision for sure, but it wasn't a difficult decision for us to make to have that opportunity to go abroad. Certainly, though, I would say for both of us, it takes an adjustment phase. We had two very young daughters at the time that we went to Switzerland. And both of us were working here in the Toronto area at the time. And I would say we did have to adjust in Switzerland to having one parent home and one working. Once we got through that transition time with some, you know, honest conversations and very clear expectations for all of us, I think I'm just so lucky and I'm just so grateful that he is just as comfortable being an untraditional family structure as I am. And we really make decisions together. Every move, every global decision, we move as a team. And I think we're a stronger family because we are an expat family by and large. Because we've had the experiences we've had, we've had to rely on each other so much more because we were each other's partners. And even for my children, I think they're so bonded my daughters because when we move new countries they are each other's best friends i think in many ways there are always pros and cons with global assignments what a great story we mentioned earlier your father-in-law was diagnosed at one point with cancer it was lymphoma there was a link established with roche through his medical experience 
You had mentioned earlier a bit about that. Could you touch on that a bit more? I was working at IMC. I was working at the Trade Association at the time, and he had been diagnosed with lymphoma, and he had tried several medications, traditional chemotherapies, and nothing was really working. And it just so happened that there was a new medication coming forward, and his physicians in Kingston were very progressive thinkers and very knowledgeable of the most innovative medicines and were able to help him access his medications through early access programs and through different exceptional programs with the government. And he was able to start on some new therapies. And within a few months, he was feeling better and found himself in remission that year and lived another 20 years, which is just phenomenal. At the time, I knew what medications he was taking, but I didn't talk about them openly. And when Roche asked, it was almost serendipitous because I was approached by the company and by the CEO at the time to ask if I'd consider the company. And I remember calling Chris after having that first conversation with Ronnie, and we both just reflected on, isn't, isn't this amazing that without Ronnie even knowing, here he is calling me, and we've just found out a few weeks ago that your dad's in remission thanks to one of the medications. Nobody knew, it, and it was just for us a signal that it was the right place to go. Wow, what a great story. I'd appreciate you telling us about Roche from a, a 30,000-foot perspective. I'm sure most people know the name but they're not intimately familiar with the company. I'm happy to talk about the company. You know, it's one of the largest biotech companies. We have differentiated medicines in oncology, in immunology, in infectious diseases, ophthalmology, diseases of the central nervous system. So we have a large biotech pharmaceutical presence. We're also a leader in in vitro diagnostics and tissue-based cancer diagnostics. And we're a front runner in diabetes management. We really look at ourselves as the Roche Group with a huge passion for patients and for science. Really, that's at the heart of everything that we do. And our passion for science and our real commitment to relentlessly pursuing the impossible for patients, that's the real commitment to us. And that's what leads us into that leading position we have. And we think of ourselves really as a really important stakeholder in healthcare because we really look at it from end to end, from diagnostics to treatment to monitoring all the way through. That's Roche in a nutshell. We were based in Basel, Switzerland. We are still majority family owned as a company and based in Switzerland. And in Canada, we are nearly 2,000 employees now in Roche, Canada. And we have the privilege really of working both in local and global roles in Canada across the three divisions and have representation in the Toronto area as well as in the Montreal area in Nevada. Thank you for that. I understand you joined Roche Canada on December 1st, 2006. What was your initial role? I was the director of federal government affairs in the field. So I was based in Ottawa and working for the pharmaceutical division in Mississauga. You mentioned earlier something I'd like to come back to. You describe yourself as a tri-sector leader. What does that mean? It's something I've learned over time. I read this article in the Harvard Business Review years ago talking about tri-sector leadership. And that's really spoke to me. And that's why I really describe myself this way, because with the different degrees and experiences and co-op programs that I've had that we've talked about, 
I've had the pleasure now of working in the not-for-profit sector. I've had the pleasure of working in the public sector. And I've had the pleasure of working in the private sector. So that's the tri-sector element of it, having worked in all three of those sectors. And what I've learned, they've all been in healthcare. And what I've learned is how to bring those voices together. You know, one of my big learnings from all three sectors is healthcare is so complicated. It is a complex area, no matter the country, healthcare is complex. And the way that we're able to solve complex problems is by bringing different voices together and different perspectives together and working on common outcomes that we want to achieve. And so tri-sector leadership really is someone who understands the different perspectives, understands and has worked in those perspectives and can bring people together to really solve challenges and find opportunities and make impact together. You were with Roche for about seven years and you had your daughters and eventually you and Chris made the decision to go to Basel, Switzerland, where you became the global head of health policy. And if I understand correctly, this was supposed to be a two-year adventure, but it turned into an eight-year journey. I'd like to touch on that jump for a moment. What really fueled your decision to leave Canada? Was it, hey, here's an adventure, let's go for it? I think for us, it was a combination of Chris and I knowing we wanted to have a global opportunity at some point. And I was thinking to myself about professional development, career advancement, And I was looking at the roles in Canada and thinking, you know, I would really like to progress in my career. And I think having a role as the leader of the access division would be interesting. And there were many capable people in Canada who were developing their career and had that role as their career path. And so for me, the decision to go global had to do with differentiation and career progression. So if I could go to Basel and the plan was to go for two years, you're right, have a two-year assignment and learn about the global structure, the global organization, then I would come back to Canada and I would have a very different set of experiences that would be considered when the time might come for career advancement in the Canadian organization. That was the plan. And you became global head of health policy. I assume you were doing a lot of traveling with this job. It wasn't that long ago. But do you recall whether there were a lot of women in similar positions in the pharmaceutical industry at that time, or was this a pretty small club? I went over as an individual contributor and then found myself as the head of global health policy in Basel. And it was a wonderful experience to really be able to go around the world, work with different affiliates, help them understand and work with their governments on different health policy issues, be a voice and a contact for international institutions like the UN and the NGO, different NGOs like the World Health Organization and the World Bank. It was a really great working experience, both to learn different cultures, to learn different roles, again, to appreciate broader perspectives. Now, in terms of leadership, I think what I appreciated being in a global role is the fact that there were a lot more women around me than I did expect to see. When I was working at IMC as a staff person, what I saw around the board table that was only one woman general manager around that board table. Very different IMC today. But back then in 2002, there was one woman. And then at one point, I think we had two out of 15 representatives on that board. I think a, you know a global role lets you see that there are other 
female leaders in the industry there. And that was a really powerful thing for me to see. And no surprise to you, Jim, I also helped found the women's professional group in our larger global department, which was really to look at how could we continue to grow more women into the life sciences. It's been a passion, I guess, from school all the way to professional realities. The community at IMC and elsewhere and other organizations across Canada now has got a much larger number of women within its ranks. It does. What I found really striking, I was at our annual general meeting for IMC last November, and they were kind enough to invite the board members to answer questions on stage. And for the first time, there were more women than men. And so you really see how things have been changing and progressing, and that we're really moving in the right direction. When you were in Switzerland, there was a defining moment in your career about overcoming self-doubt and having the courage to speak up. I'd appreciate you sharing with our listeners the details of that discussion with your boss and what that discussion meant to you. Peter Brown is a great leader, and he's really important in my career journey. And just as Ronnie Miller is important to me in terms of bringing me into the company and being a consistent mentor and sponsor for me throughout my career, the roles that I have taken up until that point, they were moments, right, where people approached me, where I wasn't necessarily looking, but I was having personal experiences that were drawing me to those roles. And when I was in Basel, what I really appreciated about Peter is that he was very focused on career progression and professional development. And he could sense from our discussions that I had things on my mind and I wasn't being clear, Jim. You know, I would talk about the fact that I wanted to be a people leader, that I wanted to help people, that I wanted to have a purpose. And those are all true things. And yet they're not specific and they're difficult to understand. What does that specifically mean that I do? And, and I remember Peter, at one point we were having this discussion and he took me for a walk outside. We were walking along the Rhine and he was just pressing me on being more specific. What area did I really want to think about? Where did I want to go with my career? I have thought about general management for a few years at that point. Never spoke it out loud, but thought about it. Here I was traveling the world and meeting other general managers and working with them and their teams and helping bring them closer to their governmental colleagues and stakeholders. And that was an important part of the general manager role. And I kept thinking to myself, well, if I'm helping general managers do that part of their role, perhaps I could also consider general management. And there was just that age-old doubt that we sometimes wear. You know that your background's not traditional. You know that you haven't gone through all of those different steps that other, perhaps more traditional backgrounds in general management have gone through, right? I didn't do sales for years. I didn't do marketing for years. And so was my skill set going to be appreciated? And Peter just made me feel so comfortable to be able to ask the question, you know, what about general management? And what I appreciated from that conversation is I went into it with all the things that I was missing. This is what I'm interested in. I know I don't have this. and I know I don't have that. And Peter was just like, time out. If this is of interest to you, let's talk about what you do bring. These are the skills that you're bringing to the table. And there's no perfect candidate who closes every single one of the requirement. Let's talk about all the areas of strength you're bringing. And let's talk about the areas that we're going to develop. And, you know, it was that moment where my career became very intentional. 
from that moment on, everything has been intentional with my career. And maybe that's you know, the strength Peter gave me. Maybe that's the strength Ronnie was giving me. Maybe that was because I was a sole breadwinner and responsible for four people in a foreign country. And I needed to take on that responsibility. Whatever it was, it became quite important that I voice my hopes and aspirations for my career and that I was clear and understood what I meant to close those gaps and then that led me to my next few steps. We'd like to take a moment to remind our listeners this podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. This event is taking place in Hamilton, Ontario on the first Monday in October. NGBI brings together today's industry leaders and notable startups from across Canada who are part of our life sciences sector. You can get more information about the summit at nextgreatbigideas.com. If you could offer advice to your younger self, and perhaps to women just starting their careers in life sciences who may be listening to this conversation, what would that advice be? By the time I had this realization and became purposeful with my career, I was in my early to mid-40s. And so I guess I would say to myself, what took me so long to be clear and to be courageous enough to speak up. I knew that I was interested in the commercial side of the business. And to be fair, roles in access and public affairs do have a very important contribution to the organizations from a commercial perspective. And yet we weren't seen as such at that time. And so I did not explore different avenues in my career up until my 40s. So I guess I'd go back and say to myself, just have the courage to try different avenues, different kinds of roles. Don't be so afraid to be told no. Put your ego aside and know that if you're clear and you're consistent and you're persistent, things are going to open up. So I wish I had known that because I might have been a bit more vocal and a bit more open to different experiences earlier in my career. I cannot begin to imagine the obstacles that you have probably faced over the years. Are there any in particular that come to mind? And I'm wondering if there are, how did you overcome them? And did you take lessons away from those experiences? I think that for me, you know, it's not so much about obstacles, it's where my strengths were and not focusing so much on where my gaps were. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, Jim. And so I think about all the things that I could still improve upon and I focus there and I continue to try to close gaps, which is important. And I think that one of the things that's equally important is knowing where your strengths are and knowing where we can continue to contribute and how your different skills are important. I think that that was a really important thing for me to learn as a leader coming through the organization. And certainly... A lot of what I've learned, I've learned about myself and I've learned whether I had male leaders or female leaders, I've had such incredible mentors, incredible sponsors. It's been really great to be able to look back now and appreciate the support I've given, but the drive I also had to give my career personally and how I grow with every step that I'm taking. My career is not over. I continue to grow. I continue to learn. And I continue to understand how I can be more clear in my progression. From Basel, you transitioned with Roche to the UK, where you took on a commercial leadership role. And around this time, both you and Chris lost your parents while you were overseas. What was that time like for you professionally and personally? When you go on these international assignments, there are 
pros to it and there are challenges to these assignments. You know, as I talked before, the pro is that as a family, we've experienced amazing things and we have different perspectives on different cultures and are strong as a family unit. And yet from the challenging side, you're also far away from your extended family and from your parents and your siblings and so on. And it was difficult for us from that perspective where we lost our parents. My dad had passed away before we moved, but I lost my mom when we were in the UK. You only feel the distance when something like that happens and you realize the moments that you wish you would have had. While she was really adventurous, my mother, so she came to visit us all the time when we were in Europe. She's still a person that was really important in my life. She's still important in my life. And that wasn't easy. And Chris lost both of his parents while we were away in different circumstances. It's where you feel the distance, for sure. You eventually moved again to become general manager of Roche Pharmaceuticals, and you were based in Belgium and Luxembourg. Your time in that position also coincided with the COVID pandemic. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on the difference between the European and Canadian responses to COVID. Do you think it was similar or different? And what lessons do you think we came away with? I'm not sure that I can do a like-for-like comparison. What I can say is we moved to Belgium the year before the pandemic. I got to know the company, the employees. We got to meet neighbors and appreciate the country about a year or so before, which I think helped a lot personally. Once we were in that lockdown phases, because I had connections with employees already and I understood stakeholder views already. And so that was really important. I think for any government around the world, it must have been such a difficult time to be the health minister or to be the leader of that country and to be able to guide your country through pandemic that we are all understanding at the same time where we didn't have a clear understanding of it. From my understanding of Canada or Belgium, it was a really important time where we learned about the value of healthcare. We learned about what healthcare meant to our wealth as citizens and as an economy. We learned about the importance of healthcare, right? If you don't have health, you have nothing else. Everything shuts down. And it was a really important learning, I think, no matter where you were around the world. We learned about the importance of partnership. We learned about the importance of stakeholders coming together, putting all egos aside and just understanding that we had clear outcomes and objectives we just had to reach. And how could we do it differently and in a way that was still safe and secure and help progress healthcare solutions in a way we've never seen before. So we saw things like rolling submissions taking place at the European Medicines Agency, which would be similar to here with Health Canada. We saw clinical trials get up and running within weeks, which would normally take us, you know, a year to two years to get up and running. We were able to do in weeks. And so we saw different perspectives in our partnerships with governments and hospitals and patient groups that we hadn't seen before. And I just think it was such an important learning, the learning of what is possible. And my hope is that as we're out of the lockdown phases now, that we don't give up on that sense of community and healthcare and that we still value healthcare as an investment in ourselves and that we are able to partner in ways that can make sure that healthcare is accessible for everyone. 
COVID impacted everything, every person, every business. How was Roche affected by the COVID pandemic? We're really proud of the contribution that we were able to make during the pandemic, during those lockdown phases. We were able on the pharmaceutical side to partner with different companies to bring new medications forward to help those impacted by the disease. We were able to get clinical trials up and running for medications that were primarily used in other therapy areas, but had promise in COVID and were able to run trials around the world very quickly. So we're so proud of our contribution from that perspective. And then from the diagnostic side, Jim, I just have to tell you, I think our diagnostics colleagues are just phenomenal. That ability, I mean, if anybody has swabbed up their nose in the past three years at home, this is what Roche Diagnostics was able to bring forward, was a point of care test at home to help us to be able to manage through some of our understanding of COVID. Watching them be able to bring tests forward in record time that, again, would have taken years, and they were able to do it in months and then scale up production, I just think it was phenomenal. For us as a company, we're just really proud that we were able to be part of that global effort to support people around the world that were impacted. We all were impacted with the pandemic, and we, and we played it in different ways in the Roche Group. And, and certainly, there's a lot of pride in what we were able to accomplish, and pride in the relationships and, and the partnerships we were able to establish as well. In 2022, you were given a, an opportunity to come home to Canada, and you were appointed to the role of president and CEO of Roche Canada Pharma. Was that appointment one that you actively sought out, or did somebody approach you and say, hey, I've got an idea? I think in all fairness, Ronnie Miller, who was the CEO here in Canada, he continued to be a mentor and a sponsor for me throughout my career in global roles and in, in European roles. We stayed in touch throughout that whole time. He is just such a supporter and such an important person in terms of giving me advice. I think that part of the role and the timing of the role is always by chance that that's when the role becomes available. And Ronnie decided to take his retirement after a very deserved 30 plus years in the organization. And at the same time, it was also at a moment that was important for us personally. You know, my daughter is just starting high school. And so we wanted to make sure that she could start and finish in one country. It was an important time professionally. It was an important time family-wise. And I have to say, from a family perspective, our children were so young when we left Canada. They were two and five. They just turned 12 and 15 a few weeks ago. It was really important for Chris and I that they also have an opportunity to live in Canada and understand what it means to be Canadian. They understood it, but to live in Canada is different. And to understand Canada from being in Canada is very different. And I have to say, professionally for me, what greater opportunity does one have than to come back and lead an organization? First of all, it's meant so much to me in my career, but also to be able to give back and to have a positive and productive voice in the evolution of our healthcare system. You know, for me, it's just such a strong calling. I care so deeply about Canada, and I just want to be able to come back and have a positive impact on the lives of Canadians. To answer your question, there was professional motivation and there was deep personal motivation. You've lived in four countries and seen professionally and personally 
what the life sciences sector can do. You've been with Roche for 15 years, and you're coming up on your one-year anniversary since starting as president and CEO of Roche Canada Pharma. Roche has had a significant presence here since 1931, and it's one of the most important pharmaceutical companies we have. I would appreciate your thoughts on what you have learned since coming back and what role you see the company playing in the Canadian life sciences sector going forward. The company has been in Canada now 92 years, so we consider ourselves by and large, a long-term partner in the Canadian healthcare system. And we are really proud. When I left nine years ago, we were about 400 employees and we're now 2,000 employees. And the pharmaceutical site here in Mississauga with about 1,500 of us, the rest of us in Laval. And so you really look at the growth that we've had and the belief that we have in Canada. And I think that's the really important message for us. We believe strongly in what Canada can do. And I think whether you're at Roche Canada or you're in industry, we know coming out of the experiences we've just had in the past few years, we know that we have a valuable contribution to make in our healthcare systems and in our economy. And it's just such a privilege to be able to see Canadians be able to work in our organization in local roles, but also equally in global roles and to be global leaders out of Canada. I think Canada has so much potential, so many of the right ingredients to continue to grow. I think right now is a really important point in our healthcare evolution. We have learned throughout COVID how fragile our Canadian healthcare systems actually are. And I think we're at this fork in the road in terms of are we going to evolve and prioritize healthcare and return it to being the envy of the world that it used to be, or are we not? I'm encouraged by what I've seen of late in terms of our governmental leaders coming together and really putting some ambition behind healthcare, because I think that's what it's going to take in Canada. It's going to take a clear vision and clear ambition to be able to bring us forward. We have a strong life sciences sector we have strong life sciences sector strategies, and they need to be coupled with important health strategies. And those two things need to come together for us to be able to grow, for science to be able to advance, for innovation to make it to patients who are waiting in Canada. We need to make sure that the life science sector strategies and the health strategies come together and that they come together in a timely way. I think we've got smart people in Canada. We've got really strong academic centers tied to healthcare institutions. We have diverse populations. We have really strong scientists. We have strong talent. And when you think of everything that we could bring together, there's no reason that we can't be a real leader in the life sciences community around the world. And so my real aspiration for us is that we're going to take our potential in Canada and we're going to have a lot of ambition and we're going to make our impact exponential by really focusing on our strengths and moving into action. Because now's the time, Jim, we have to move. It's no longer about developing strategy upon strategy. Now it's about linking our strategies together federally, provincially, life sciences and healthcare, and working together as a team to make sure that Canadians are getting access to the medicines they need. You've raised so many good points. From my position in the commercial real estate sector, kind of on the outside looking in, 
for the last 10 years as I've waded into the soup of life sciences, I've likened it to an old 35 millimeter camera where if we could just take the lens and just tweak it into focus, we would be firing on all cylinders. And I share your hope and your desire to see that happen. What's the best part of your job so far? It's working with people. It's getting to know different people. I'm an extrovert. I get energy from working with people. The best part of my job is getting to work with the fantastic employees at Roche Canada, right? We are once again considered by Glassdoor one of the great places to work in 2023. And that's thanks to employees evaluating their experience at Roche Canada in a way that gives us that privilege. Getting to know the employees, getting to know the talent, getting to work with that talent is best part of my job. And I think coupled to that is the ability to work with different stakeholders across Canada. Canada is a collection of healthcare systems. It's a federation. And so getting to work and meet with leaders across the provinces and territories and federally and understand how to work together to realize the ambition we want to see in healthcare, that's also been a great privilege that I've had a chance to do in the past year. What is your response to those women who may think they do not have the skill set supposedly necessary for leadership, whatever that is? What would you say to them? Two things. I'd say, first of all, leadership is changing. And employees expect leaders who bring their full selves to their role and are authentic and thoughtful and emotional. And all the things we've been told as women to hold back on, now is the time to let it all go. Because what employees want is leaders who understand what it is to manage a family and a profession, who understand what it is to be afraid and to be happy and to be sad. And all they wanted during COVID was someone to be honest and real and take care of them and create a safe space. And that's what women leaders do very well. I would say if one is holding back, then this is the time for female leaders to step forward because the skills that are expected are the skills we've naturally honed for years. And the other thing I would say is don't hold yourself back. Don't allow yourself to be the reason that you're not advancing. Be honest be clear, move forward, be courageous, and you're going to learn no matter what happens, you're going to be taking wonderful steps forward. What's the next great big idea on your horizon? I think healthcare is at a moment where we have to now help it evolve. We're at a point where in Canada, we have to evolve our healthcare system and we need to understand how technology is going to play a strong role in that evolution. For me, the next big idea, the next big step in our healthcare system is to be a system truly driven by data, by insights, and one that's enabled by oral machine learning. And what do I mean by that? I mean, to my point about Canada having ambition and Canada following its strengths, we are a leader in research and in how artificial intelligence and machine learning plays a role in research. So whether you're looking at AMI or Mila or the Vector Institute, whether these are organizations that exist in Toronto and Montreal and Alberta, our skills are across the country. We have these skills and we are international leaders with these skills. And so our healthcare system, and, and again, I'm encouraged by what I've seen of late, this commitment to healthcare and to bringing our information and our data together in order for us to make strong decisions. And those decisions are going to be about public health 
and are we investing in the right places? A good, strong data system enabled by AI. And it's going to help us really understand that whole concept of real world evidence and how we come together and think about investments in healthcare innovation in the future. Our health data capabilities are at the core. And Canada is just so well positioned to be a leader worldwide in this space. And we have to act quickly. This is not something we can sit back on. The European Commission is already moving forward with the European health data space. Last spring, I saw Rwanda announced that it's now forming its first AI center of excellence. So there are countries, emerging countries, developed countries that are all moving in this space. Canada has the lead. Canada won't have the lead forever. And so it's one of those places where we need to appreciate our strength, have ambition for healthcare, and understand how technology is going to enable our healthcare system and make it even stronger on behalf of patients. That's my real wish for our healthcare system in the next few years. We are very fortunate to have you back in Canada, even more so to have you in a leadership position in the life sciences sector. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you better. Thank you, Jim. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. That was Brigitte Nollet, President and CEO of Roche Canada Pharma. If you'd like to learn more about the incredible things going on at Roche, please go to Roche Canada, that's R-O-C-H-E, Canada.com. The NGB Ideas podcast is brought to you by LabOccupier.com, and this week's episode was researched and produced by Tisha Prasad. Thanks for joining us this week. If you like what we're doing, we'd appreciate you promoting us on social media. You can follow us at NGB Ideas, and you can follow me at Lab Occupier. You can also contact me by email at jwilson at leonard, L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>